There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve extraordinary success. Our guest today is a broadcaster who is the BBC's North America editor and has presented the Today programme on Radio 4 for more than a decade. Justin Webb's unflappable character and calm, melodious voice have soothed Middle England through the many tumultuous mornings over the last few years. But his upbringing was anything but calm. His memoir, The Gift of a Radio, describes a bleak and lonely childhood, blighted by a stepfather's mental illness and later by violence and neglect at school. He calls his mother Gloria ineffably snobbish and says she was obsessed by saying and doing the right things. The terms toilet, perfume and dentures were all banned in the house. People hear my accent, he says, and think another privileged BBC public schoolboy. But I wanted to show that life isn't always that simple. Justin Webb, thank you so much for joining us on Passing Thank you for having Perfect. me. Um, how do you think your upbringing has informed your broadcasting? Uh, I think it's made me more in tune with people who are miserable. Uh, and it's not that I'm miserable. I've, I've had the most extraordinarily happy adulthood, actually. I'm a very cheerful person. But I did have a miserable childhood. Looking back on it, I didn't necessarily know how miserable it was at the time. In fact, I don't think I ever knew how miserable it was until I had children of my own and saw how cheerful childhood can be but I do have an affinity I think or, or or an understanding of people who are going through traumatic things in their lives and I think I always have and I, I when I was first working at the BBC and working as a war correspondent I can rem- remember being frightened occasionally when things went bang but more than that desperately affected sort of psychologically by the awful traumatic things you see in in wars in Bosnia and in the first Gulf War and places just the sort of well the things we're seeing now in in Ukraine the sadness that is visited upon people and being incredibly upset by it actually more upset I felt as I looked around at my colleagues more Mm -hmm. upset and perfectly reasonable nice people but more upset than them. And I think it is both a good thing and a bad thing. I think it's a good thing journalistically to be empathetic, obviously, but it's also a bad thing. And as much as, you know, a bit, bit like being a doctor, you've got to be able to cope with illness. And I'm not sure uh, when I was younger, I was as able to cope actually with those things as as, um, as I should have been. And you write in your book that everything I learned about being a man, I've learned from a woman, which was your mother. Mm. And do you think that's why you're less confrontational, maybe and more emotional and intuitive? You've got to wonder if it's true. I, I don't know is the honest answer. And I, uh, there are so many things. I wrote the book and at the end of it, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure that writing it was a good idea in the sense that of, of the sort of catharsis side of it. I'm not sure whether um, examining yourself is a good thing or a bad thing. And one of the things I'm not sure about, but I think is an interesting idea, which is why I wrote about it in in that section of the book, is whether being brought up by one very strong woman and all the male figures being, for various reasons, hopeless slash absent slash reduced, made me enormously able to be things that we sort of associate with womanhood, like the ability to express emotion. I've never found it difficult to be physically um, close to my kids, and I know some men do. I enjoy women's company, which some men don't particularly. But I also, there's a, the, the downside of is I, I can remember as a child also thinking there's just something missing, that kind of recklessness that that 
men have and who knows whether they actually have it or whether we're just encouraging in society that's that's a discussion for another day but they do have it uh, and I would go down to Bath Rugby Club we lived in the city of Bath and it was amateur in those days deeply violent peculiar game actually involving really grotesque on-field violence and at the end of it it was only watched by a few hundred people you could go onto the pitch you just wandered on among the men and these people who'd been absolutely kind of thumping each other would have their arms draped around each other and their ears hanging off and blood coming down their heads and their blood would mingle and I can remember looking at them and thinking I would so love to be as at ease with violence nonchalant about those things <laughs> and because I was brought up by a woman I feel that I was sort of held back from that kind of bit of life. There are all sorts of other things it gave me, but I think it also takes away. But you're also less confrontational than some of your male colleagues as an interviewer. Yeah. Do you think there's a difference between the way in which men and women interview? Yes, I, I think there is, but probably not for any kind of innate reasons. I think more it's an, a, a social expectation thing, isn't it? And I think women find a way to get on without being overly confrontational, because if they were overly confrontational, they would be put in a box and possibly not promoted much from, mm. an, from an early age. And almost vice versa with men, actually. I think if yeah. you're a gentle male interviewer, you probably find it more difficult. Or, or in, in days gone by, in the last kind of decade, you might have, in the, in the era of Humphreys and Paxman, etc., yeah. you might have been thought a bit of, a bit of a wuss. You know, yeah. what's the point of him? So these things are, it's never difficult to know whether there is actually a difference in the way innately, on average, in the way men and women approach things, or whether actually it's just the way that they are schooled at an early stage, and then you follow the, the schooling. And one of your colleagues, Michelle Hussein, she said there's something unknowable about Justin. <laughs> do you think you've learned to conceal your feelings? And is that about self-protection, do you think? Or... I, did, I did ask you, Michelle, what she meant by that. Dark and interesting, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I posited. It's better uh, than obvious and boring. It's better than obvious and boring, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, I think there probably is something slightly reserved about me, possibly as a result of my strange upbringing. I learned at a very early age, we were watching Blue Peter and Children's Hour and I was watching it with my mother and the news came on and uh, the newsreader was Peter Wood's lugubrious, baggy eyes, looking increasingly actually as I look in the, in the early morning when I look <laughs> in the mirror and she said, that's your father. And then she went next door to, to make the tea and that was the only conversation we ever had about him. And I realized that this was something we were never going to talk about again, and we shouldn't. And I sort of watched the end of the broadcast. It was about the trade figures, I remember, which were, were poor. And um, that was it. And I think that sort of repression slash suppression of things and of part of yourself is something you deeply learn when you're a child and it and it happens to you in in that way and my mother you know who in many respects was was absolutely wonderful and affectionate and and um uh, and life enhancing for me life giving for me there were some things that she very plainly didn't want to go and that was absolutely unquestionably one of them and I, I think that has left me with a similar kind of compartmentalization ability mm. even without thinking about it so what did you feel when you found out who your father was? Can you remember? I can remember we were also uh, going to get a guinea pig. And, <laughs> and I can remember actually thinking about the father thing for a minute and then going back to thinking about the guinea pig. And it's funny when you look back as, as a child, you know, as adults, you sort of know that not having the father or the father being a man on, in the corner of the room reading the news is actually more important than the guinea pig. But of course, when you're a child, it's not. Uh, and the guinea pig became then more important than the father or seemed to. I had a teddy bear, a red teddy bear with um, black hair, and I named it Peter. Uh, and that was it. Oh, my uh, So I called the teddy Peter, but there was never any more discussion. Did your mother and you ever watch 
your dad then well, on the TV without <clears throat> the discussion? Once in quite difficult circumstances and actually in a weird way, quite famous circumstances. So when they did the Morecambe and Wise show where the newsreaders first came out, as it were, and you saw that they had legs. This is now the kind of <laughs> right. later 70s. I think it was about 77. Really famous Christmas show. And they all came on. And Andre Previn was there as well, who'd previously been on. And, and of course, they'd done that great skit with him. And the show, we were watching it. We loved Morecambe and Wise. The only thing I was really allowed to watch that was vaguely flippant on the, on the TV. And it ends with Peter Woods coming on, dressed as a sailor. And he sings, There Ain't Nothing But a Dame. And he had the most incredible low voice. And we're in this little house, me, my mum, my deeply mentally ill stepfather, and he comes on and he sings, There Ain't Nothing But a Dame. And then the program ends. And I can remember my mum saying, He had shoes the size of the Queen Mary. <laughs> and then we put the TV back in the corner. The TV was sort of kept out of the way and pulled our chairs round again because the chairs were never actually facing the TV because that would have been a, a class error, <laughs> uh, which we might get to in a bit. And I, I and that was that was the only time he sort of came on the TV when we weren't expecting him and caused some difficulty in the in the house. But again, I mean, it was a, a momentary thing and we just got on. So tell us about your mother. She had this rather extraordinary, quite wealthy childhood with yeah, cooks my, and butlers. She, and, she, was, um, she was the epitome of what we would now call, I suppose, distressed gentlefolk, and her mother certainly was. So they were on the way down. Her father had been the first editor of the Radio Times, friend of Lord Reith, quite a considerable figure in magazines, Leonard Crokin before the war. They'd had a cook and a maid and a large rented house, as wealthy people did in those days, and he would pop up to London and he had a club and all, all the rest of it. And they I can remember her saying when they went for picnics in the South Downs, they'd have a driver who took them and waited by the car while they ate and, and, and all that kind of life. But then the war came and they all fell in their own kind of different ways on hard times. And my mother, I mean, we, we weren't desperately poor, but we were pretty hard up and certainly we didn't live that kind of lifestyle and yet she hung on to or indeed perhaps because of that downward mobility she hung on to just the most extraordinary kind of view of life in which we and she in particular were superior to everyone and it was a kind of really deep-seated superiority. It wasn't sort of hyacinth bouquet, nervy snobbery where we're always worried about what the neighbours would think. She didn't give a damn what the neighbours thought of us because the neighbours were lower middle class and uh, she would not have given them the time of day. And she had this kind of weird list of things that you couldn't do, uh, growing begonias in the garden was, was was one of those perfectly innocent little plants people have in their front garden she thought was lower middle class. And tea towels you had, didn't you? Tea towel um, was a dishcloth. Still a <laughs> cause of division in my own house. I am the only one who says dishcloth because I can't bring myself to say tea towel. Any anglicised French word, so perfume had to be scent. Um, serviette had to be napkin. Um, particular stresses on words. So if sh if you, sh you heard someone say controversy rather than controversy, that was a complete no-no. And then the classic one, I suppose the biggest one, was toilet. And I still can't bring it. <laughs> I see it on a BBC script. Uh, I have to cross it out and, and put lavatory or, or loo on something. Let's face it, we've said worse words on the Today programme in, in recent years. Can you when... say pardon? I can't say pardon, no. no. And there's, so at one stage... Our neighbours, daughters, who I was quite friendly with when I was very little, I had taught them to say what instead of saying pardon. And we, my mother and I, were in the garden. We heard their mother say to them, don't say what, say pardon. And we howled with laughter because, of course, that was that was desperately poor advice. <laughs> it was going to consign them to a lifetime of, of lower middle class uh, idiocy. So was uh, she an incredible snob or was she just clinging to an old way of I life? I think she was clinging. I think she was clinging. And I, I, mean, I think she did feel it very deeply. She thought the Queen was, was um, common. <laughs> <laughs> the Queen had let the cameras into Buckingham Palace and she thought that was vulgar. <laughs> Um, and she, 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 she absolutely kept to all those things. And of course, the the big thing that it gives you and gave her is this 
effortless then superiority and inner confidence while everything around you collapses. So my dear granny, who'd never done a day's work in her life, had been from genuinely aristocratic stock, ended her days in penury in, in a rather d- awful, dingy bedsit in, in a suburb of the city of Bath. And she every day would go to a wimpy bar with a bottle, a medicine bottle, which she filled with sweet wine, and she'd pour it out into a, a cup and drink it with her with her lunch. And I can remember one of the things my mother had told me was that if you drink sweet wine with the main course of a meal, that is working class. Mm. Um, <laughs> I doubt that many working class people do actually do it. But anyway, her view was working class. So I remember saying to my mum one day, what, hang on a second, if granny drinks sweet wine with lunch, does that mean granny's working class? And my mother bursting into laughter and saying, no, 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 dear, granny's granny. Cause, <laughs> cause in other words, you can do what the hell do you like. And it gives you that kind of core inner strength. And I think, you know, for all that my childhood was weird and devoid of all sorts of normal things that childhood should have, I, I, I did have a real sense of my own superiority, actually, which was, I mean, number one, utterly ludicrous but number two quite handy mm. in, in a way as mm. you as you go into life because you don't feel at all socially out of place mm. so you know how to use your knives and forks and you don't use my knife and fork my, my, my mother said very clearly to me when i was young if you use your knife and fork properly and speak properly you'll be fine mm. she had no interest at all in education <laughs> and certainly not in mine and was she very kind though and, and enormously thoughtful? kind and this is actually part of the reason I, I i wrote my book about all of this is is that i wanted to sort of get to this idea that we do uh, pigeonhole people much too much in the modern era for all the obvious reasons and social media, etc. And and I, I had felt that I was pigeonholed, not not in a way that's probably desperately unfair as a kind of rather dull, posh bloke reading things on the radio. And actually, I thought, you know, if people knew more about my past, it's a way of sort of then saying we should all know more about all of our past. And my mother, as well as being all the things that I've just described, was the founder member of Bath's Amnesty International group believed enormously in human rights uh, alongside her despising of the working class. <laughs> she, she also generally was an internationalist. She was a Quaker, became a member of the Religious Society of Friends. She was a Greenham Common woman for a bit. She used to, to go to Greenham Common to protest about nuclear weapons. She was a member of CND, enormously allowed Bruce Kent, I think partly because Bruce Kent, the then head of CND, spoke rather Poshly. She loved Tony Benn, um, not because of his politics. I don't think she knew much about his politics, but she loved the idea of his accent because he was able to say, you know, we should be giving more power to the working classes, but in that kind of wonderful sort of old-fashioned British aristocratic way. She despised Edward Heath and Mrs. Thatcher as well as she came into vision in the 70s because she thought they were striving and she didn't like that. But at the same time, she did have all of this sort of hinterland of stuff, particularly as she got older, that of course in many respects we all have these weird mixtures of snobbery and kindness, austerity, and she was very austere with me in some ways, and obviously not talking about my father would be a prime example of that, but on the other hand she was massively affectionate, genuinely affectionate, and enormously loving, and, and, and enveloped me in a love that I can still feel now, and she's been dead a long time. So you know, th- those mixtures of things, which is, I, I think it is actually describes all of us, mm-hmm. describes human life. But it, it, when you when you distill it in a single person, you realize how would it be possible to describe my mother at any one time and get it completely right? And I don't think you could. You were obviously incredibly close, but did it get stifling as you were growing up? It must yeah, have been quite yeah. hard. It was hugely stifling. She announced one day we were going to get a deprived child was going to come and live with us for a week. <laughs> <laughs> And the, de- the deprived child. Where had, is the deprived child? The deprived going to come child from? was going to be plucked from London. We'd never been to London. He was going to be plucked from London, and uh, the deprived child had never seen a cow. And I can remember thinking, number one, I don't think I've ever seen a cow close up. Uh, we lived in the city of Bath. We didn't go out, out into the country much. But number two, I do remember thinking, deprived of what? And I wonder whether I, I was becoming aware that I 
was also deprived of normality, not of not of love from my mother, but of any kind of semblance of of normal life. And I wasn't so sure that I wasn't perhaps the deprived one. And then in the end, the deprived child didn't show. I was got a better <laughs> offer. And I can remember sort of going home, going back down from where I was waiting for him to arrive and eating the sausages that had been made for our joint lunch, including his, and thinking, number one, I was quite pleasant because I'm going to have the afternoon to, to listen <laughs> to the radio on my own. And number two, I wonder whether that's quite right. And I think my mother also wondered at that stage whether... I think part of the deprived child thing actually was that she was enormously worried that I wasn't going to be able to make mm. friends or have any kind of life outside our peculiar little house. And she had noticed that. And I think I noticed it at, at the same time. And did your father ever give any money to your mother, do you think? I don't think so. Way? No, no. I mean, we certainly didn't have any money when I was young. I went to a, a, this Quaker boarding school which is a fee-paying school they're not very much but it was entirely paid for by the religious society of friends kind of them um which i'm now repaid by telling everyone how repellent the school is but there we are that's life <laughs> mm-hmm. um but no I, I don't think he did i know that they had brief they had brief contact after i was born so he knew i existed but beyond that i don't, I don't you know. never saw him when no. you were growing up no and when she found out she was pregnant, she was fired on the spot, wasn't she? That, By the Daily Mirror. That must have been horrific. Yeah. And then she she was, found herself a single mother. That must have thrown all her expectations up yeah. in the air. She was a, the newsroom secretary in the Mirror, and Peter Woods was the chief reporter. Uh, very glamorous, testosterone-filled newsrooms that newspapers in Fleet Street in those days had. She said to them, I'm pregnant, and they said, well, you have to go this afternoon you had not only the stigma of having a child outside marriage, and it was still stigma in 1961, um, but also you had the financial burden mm-hmm. as well. And it do you was think huge. that's why she remarried so quickly? Yeah, 100%. Because she married your mm. stepfather yeah. very fast, yeah. didn't she? No question about it. She, she married for stability and for money. Mm. Um, not that he was particularly wealthy, but she uh, answered an advert in the New Statesman for a housekeeper. It's kind of forerunner of, of uh, <laughs> online dating yeah. <laughs> uh, he advertised for a housekeeper she responded and she then said is it okay if I bring a child he said yes and then went there and I think very soon afterwards they were married he didn't provide the stability that she was hoping at all by the sound of it a week after they were married she um, she went to the doctor because he'd been pouring the milk down the sink and she thought a doctor ought to hear about that and the doctor turned to her and said, I'm sorry to tell you, Mrs. Webb, that your husband is stark staring mad. And that was th- that's a diagnosis in the early 60s, as far as it goes, <laughs> oh stark gosh. staring mad. And that was it. And he was given Valium and um, that was life. And I suppose, you know, she was presumably then faced with the choice. Do I leave? Do I go back, try again, answer another advert? Mm. Or do I stick it out? And she decided to, to stick it out. And was it frightening for you then? Because he must have been incredibly unpredictable. Yes, he was. I mean, he was never um, violent. And I, as I say in the, the book, there's a we kind of have a view of mental illness that is um, too Hollywood-inspired, that people do kind of crazy things mm. with wild eyes and, and, you know, throw things or attack people. And actually, you know, as anyone knows, he's affected by mental illness and has in their families. It's, it's not really like that most of the time. It just separates the person from you because they see things and hear things and do things that are inexplicable mm. to you. Mm. He was enormously terrified of being found out, whatever that might mean, by people. So he was paranoid and um, he replaced our garage doors every month or two with a new and huger door because he thought people were getting into the car and slightly altering it just to show who's who's boss we had to have two copies of the guardian because he thought the guardian was a paper that showed people that you were a free thinker which it probably in the in the early 70s in fairness probably still was um so it ranged from kind of harmless idiocies like that through to yeah, I mean, thoroughgoing madness that, that frightened children and children stopped coming. And when I was 12, I think, he tried to kill himself on my birthday. Um, oh. And I can remember um, I was allowed to have Frosties on my my birthday once a year. They were bad for your teeth. I think they probably still <laughs> exist, Frosties. But I can remember a lot of kerfuffle as he was found and, and my Frosties going limp. 
as I had to wait in another room as he was sort of taken away and 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 not feeling really any more than annoyance that the Frosties were limp. And, <laughs> mm. and at the same time, by then, the age of 12, realising that that in itself was strange and wrong. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the broadcaster Justin Webb. There'll be more from us after this. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the broadcaster, Justin Webb. Did you feel an enormous pressure to succeed and to achieve? Massive, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can see in my letters home from school, I, I... Everything was about, I've won this prize, not that I've won many prizes, or I've managed to do this, or I've managed to do that. Enormous pressure to succeed. And I can remember the first time I realized that I was possibly good at, I mean, my school was pretty hopeless that hardly anyone could read, let alone make a speech off the cuff. But I I was sort of possibly good at public speaking. And it became obvious at the sort of age of 15, 16 that I, I could do it. And I can remember just the thrill of being noticed, of standing up in front of people, but all of it about how impressed she would be when these things happen. She she never came to see me play rugby or do anything else, but she did come to the to the speech days. And I and I know absolutely that that for me her presence there was was enormously um important. And actually that lasted, you know, right up until I, I started at the at the BBC. And your school sounded appalling in many ways. I mean, was it yeah. the teachers or was it the other children no, or weirdly it was the pupils more than the teachers. Mm. And I think we forget that, that those of us who write about and think about schooling in the 70s, and obviously quite rightly, a lot of teachers are being held to account now for awful things that they did to pupils, particularly men to boys. But the real problem was the sort of Lord of the Flies problem, actually, that the pupils could do what the hell they liked. They really ran the place, particularly in the early 70s. Um, And they ran it cruelly. And, and in spite of it being a Quaker school, Religious Society of Friends, is that, that old sort of Woody Allen joke, I was so weedy as a child, I was beaten up by Quakers. Well, I actually <laughs> genuinely was beaten up by Quakers. They they ran this school that just um, was careless and at best careless. So, for instance, the headmaster who came right at the end of my time there, who I contacted when I wrote the book, told me that the first thing he did when he arrived is saw some boys off in full caving gear on a Saturday afternoon. He said, where are they going? And someone said, well, they're going caving. That's the Sidcote School Speleological Society. And he said, oh, who, where, where are they going? And, and the person said, well, we don't know. They just go. So they were going, the, the pupils were going down holes in the ground in the Mendips on a Saturday afternoon with no one even knowing where they were let alone any what time they were coming back or any kind of safety. But can you imagine in the modern era mm. any of that? But it also had this sort of bullying culture where we were encouraged, actually, when we were younger to, to bully each other. And bullying was um, 
sort of encouraged by the school. Ah. Um, so when you first arrived, you were told that you started in the third form and your nickname was Turds, I can remember. And you were told that you should never be cheeky. And if you got hit, it was because you'd been cheeky. And this is a master telling you this. And outside the room, literally outside the room, would be older boys waiting to say, you've been cheeky right. and punch you. And that was life. And of course, in a boarding school, you okay. can't escape. And the food was appalling, wasn't it? That yeah. You had to become a vegetarian, didn't you? The, the food, I became a vegetarian for a bit because the sausages were uncooked. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that didn't really help hugely. And when we were younger, they changed this during my course at the time at the school. But it was real Tom Brown school days in the, in the early period of the school. We would be sitting in the middle of kind of long tables with benches and the older pupils would be at the end and it, you were lucky if you kind of managed to to get anything to eat when you were young it did improve um it did Im- improve later on well someone who was there i didn't really know him at the school he was slightly older than me and also he escaped uh <laughs> to go to a better school was tim bevan the um the film producer oh. uh, and i had i'd had lunch with him a year or two ago and we were discussing we both remembered in particular the weirdness of the eating uh, at school and the comfort eating, the weird way in which people would slather things with butter. I remember baked beans with butter Mm. in them. Who puts butter in baked Mm. beans? But this kind of constant desire, I think we all had to have sort of home comforts, Mm. actually, and, and... and the freedom to eat without someone biffing you and taking the food, and, and uh, particularly when you were young, which was a constant threat. Did your mother know how appalling things were? No. Or did she no. sort of, was it a way that she felt, you know, she I needed she to separate you from I think she probably half knew. I mean, half of her probably did because she wouldn't have found it important. And there was a side to her, as well as all the things I've described, the kind of stiff upper lip. Yeah. You know, the thing about the 70s, it, it's, it was a long time ago. And if you, if you were there, an adult in the 70s, you could reach back and touch the war mm. and all the privations that, the, that there'd been. And I think, I think for a lot of people, you know, being bullied a bit about food really wasn't terribly important, even if she would have been horrified mm. by anyone being unpleasant to me. I think, I think there's a whole generation of people who had seen an awful lot worse, including a lot of the teachers, actually, and who had been damaged by it. And you were given a transistor radio as a child. Did that save you, do you think, in some ways, because it gave you the outside contact to the world? 100%, yeah. It, it was everything to me. I, I can remember switching it on in a, my tiny little box of a of a bedroom in this tiny house this silent house with my mentally ill stepfather and my very unhappy mother and just suddenly the world jimmy young was on radio one in those days uh recipe for the day william hardcastle on the world at one my word the quiz shows I can remember individual editions of a program called Down Your Way, which was a Radio 4 incredibly patronizing program where I, I can't remember who it was, but someone very posh would go to somewhere down your way <laughs> and say, what an extraordinary life you'll have here. How wonderful. I can remember one in Bootle. I, I don't know why it sticks in my mind, but there must have been a Down Your Way in Bootle. Because I remember also thinking, Bootle, my goodness, what a, fascinating, what a funny name. And, and then the lives of these people who all spoke funny, these Liverpudlian accents. And all of that stuff suddenly there, just at the flick of a switch. Uh, and radio rather than television. And you, radio, because just... television's a flat, dull medium, isn't it? That nothing good comes off. And uh, I mean, I know, you know, we look at, in all seriousness, we look at Ukraine at the moment and we look at, it, it brings you immediacy and it brings you horror but it doesn't bring you intimacy, television mm. and radio does. And suddenly people are talking to you to you personally about things in the outside world. And that's all the difference. And do you think, having gone on the BBC training scheme, um, do you think that was because of your dad in any way, either consciously or subconsciously? Weirdly, it wasn't. No, I, I genuinely don't think it was. I don't think I ever thought about him. I think by the time I was in my late teens, I think he'd really gone as a person to me and he'd... He was wasn't on the news after about 1980 or so, and I was doing other things, and, uh, and I'd gone to university, and I was actually enormously happy at university. I had a really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful three years, and um, and made lots of friends, and did all sorts of things that I'd kind of half thought that I would never manage to do, I think. And he was the last thing on my mind, and I I applied for the BBC. I applied for several training schemes, but I applied for the BBC 
among them and I never for a moment thought of having anything to do with him or asking his advice or getting in touch. Do you think you had inherited some kind of broadcasting voice or talent. Yeah, I don't know about that. When when you read Matthew Syed's books about why everyone who was good at table tennis in the entire nation lived in one road in Reading in 1983 (laughs) or whenever it was, you realise, I'm completely convinced that he's right, that when he says, hang on a second, it wasn't that there was something peculiar in the water in Reading or, or genes that were only there Mm. what happens is that there are abilities that we all have hopefully in various directions and then they're clicked those abilities by some environmental thing and the thing for me was just that it was encouraged I mean it was just it was available to me I could see it Um, and I could see my mother actually being um, who who had her own way with words and was 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 uh, as well as all the other things I've described was quite illiterate person and enjoyed writing and enjoyed reading and enjoyed things that were clever. I mean, I left school with not a single science qualification, not a single one. You can imagine (laughs) in a modern era in a fee-paying school. They they didn't care. My mother didn't care. Nobody cared. But she cared deeply about my ability to turn a good sentence. And I can remember from an early age her saying, yes, that was a very good poem or that was very good this or that. She got me to write a diary when I was very little, one of those, those sort of school diaries that you have to write. And I didn't want to write it. And she said, no, you must write it. It's a really good opportunity for you. And I said, well, like, nothing ever. We, I can remember saying to her, we never do anything. And she said, well, use that. So I wrote in the diary. <laughs> and it actually, it's a really good sort of journalistic training. Mm. This. So she said, use the fact that we don't do anything. So I wrote in the diary, my dog Fido didn't come in today with muddy paws and didn't get his paws on the sofa and didn't come into the kitchen and cause a disturbance because we don't have a dog. (laughs) And I won the prize. I won the diary prize. What the other parents must have thought. I wrote an entire thing about things that we didn't have. I mean, looking back at it, a bit of a cry for help in a in a way. But my mother was enormously pleased with the, with with that, and that's so you know, it's a long way of getting to the answer to your question. That's what encourages you, I think, to go into anything, whether it's teaching or medicine or 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 this. That it's it's that feeling that you've got the ability there, but something kind of makes it happen as well. Mm. And do you think that your emotional control is in some way sort of superpower as well? That when you go into situations or you're on radio or something's going wrong or there's an issue, that you can hold it all together in yeah, almost any. I'm not sure my wife would say it's a superpower. <laughs> yeah. Does I she mean, want you to be more open? Uh, yes, I, I think so. And I think I, I think there've been times in my life where I've been quite closed in, in a way that is unquestionably linked to to the strangeness of my upbringing. But since you put it more positively than she does, uh, I'll go with that and say, yeah, it it probably does help. I think it probably helps in live broadcasting if you're quite calm, at least on the exterior. And detached. And detached, yes, Mm. yes, yes. So you cannot become too emotionally involved in success and failure actually in 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 as much as um, it'll be over very quickly and what you have to cope with in terms of quick decision making you must then live with because you've done it you've said that word or you've you've gone away from that person or you've got this name wrong or you've got this name right or whatever it is those things require an ability to compartmentalize that yes is probably connected for me I mean, all sorts of people do it in different ways. But for me, it probably is connected to my past, yeah. But on the other hand, you prefer poetry, don't you? I think you said to prose yeah. or plays. Or... Yes. Why is that? That's yeah. a very emotional thing. It, it's also controlled, though. The wonderful thing about poetry as a medium is that it expresses such hugeness in such tightly controlled uh, ways and I've always loved that. I also love the Bach cello suites, which I share with Barack Obama, weirdly. I mean, I'm not suggesting that he and I are similar, but I, I remember when he, to the annoyance and horror of his immediate aides who were trying to make him more attractive to middle America, and they said, what music do you like, Barack? And he said, I love the Bach cello suites. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think that... I an absent I mean, father. I had an mm. absent father and a, and a weirdly 
unstructured upbringing where he felt that he needed to escape and do better things. And I, I think there is a, an attraction you have in those circumstances to art forms that are structured, but allow within that tight structure this this sort of expression. And, and poetry does that for me, and, and the Bach cello suites obviously do as well. Mm. And do you think family life is another way that that happens, that you actually really enjoy being part of a family, Massively, that you love having yeah. your children, yeah. that, that yeah. you want to be in a stable relationship because you didn't have it? Yes, hugely. And, and having children and 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 having that separation from them I'm enormously close to them in many ways but the, but the fact that I know that they have a life that isn't about me and about pleasing me has, has been you know the great joy of my life my, my youngest daughter I was driving her home from school a year or two ago and I I was talking about the privations of my youth and I said, um, you know, in the, in the early 70s when daddy was growing up, we didn't even have a car. And she looked up from her book and she said, oh, when were they invented? And I, I thought, it's just not, it's wonderful that, you know, in a generation you move on and they've got all sorts of things that they have to cope with. And my son has a, um, an incurable illness, type 1 diabetes, which is itself a... Uh, a, a strain and a stress that he will have for his whole life but what they don't have is all the stresses and strains of of my life mm. and, and that is uh it's just a wonderfully freeing thing and they grew up they were young in america when i was based there for the bbc and the, it's the most joyous thing to be able to go to an american beach and that kind of in way in which america can be so relaxed and comfortable and that freedom of their early upbringing um, gave me enormous pleasure because I certainly didn't see it when I was young. And how do you think your own fatherlessness has shaped you as a father? I think it's made me, and my wife would say it's made me um, uh, a complete walkover. <laughs> in, in, Is she the disciplinarian? In every respect, <laughs> yes. I don't really know how to be a father in as much as, I mean, I suppose I could read about it in a book. But I don't know because I've had absolutely no experience of it at all in as much as my stepfather was peculiar and and not really uh, functioning. And my father wasn't there and there were no other men. So I just don't know what to do. I've never known what to do. And I've always assumed that the best thing is, is to be um, cheerful and positive and in the background. And that's sort of how I've tried to play it, which at various stages when they were younger, I think my wife would have said, well, you could have, um, you could have been a bit tougher. <laughs> but I, I, never, I never have been. I think my children, if they were here, would say that that would not be my role. <laughs> um, I, I've just tried to muddle through, I suppose, as, as you look, we all do, don't we? I mean, we don't, any of us really know how to do it. But I suppose if you do have a model from your parents, you, you can avoid it and try to avoid the things that they did wrong. But you can at least follow the things that you think they might have got right. And with me and father, there was nothing that I that I had to follow. And do you think your mother was wrong in some ways that actually that she was obsessed by class being so important and being in the right class and saying the right things? And would you now say, having had sort of really normal family and family life, would you say that's more important? The way you come from. Yes, I mean, I suppose so. I, I, with the only caveat being that this is now, and that was the 1970s, and I'm not sure the extent to which, if my mother had met someone and been swept off her feet by them, never mind the money side of it, if we'd had that kind of family thing, would she then have allowed me to be close to them and have an ordinary family? I don't think she would, actually. I think part of the quid pro quo of her looking after me as wonderfully as she did in many ways is that I was entirely hers. And so that family, any kind of ordinary family wasn't an option. It wasn't just my poor stepfather's fault. I don't think anyone actually could have could have taken that role. So it would never have been an option to be normal in that respect. Do you feel sometimes that it's a disadvantage to be a white middle-class man at particularly the BBC? Yeah, I mean, I, I think increasingly it is not what young thrusting managers are looking for but then of course when I joined the BBC it was very much what young thrusting managers were looking for so I think the last thing you'd do um, would be to complain about it these things go in fashions um, and you know I'd, I'd tell the story sometimes when I started as a trainee in the BBC Jeremy Byrne and I were in the radio newsroom 
copy tasting, which is a role that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you used to have to kind of rip off the Reuters teleprompter wire and read about something and assess whether it was important or not and hand it to an editor. And it was all done, everything done by hand. And there'd be people, women typewriting, typewriters in the, in the background and people would declaim to them because it was decided that all radio scripts, it had long been decided that all radio scripts could only be declaimed. They couldn't be written down. They had to be written by someone who'd actually just speak to a woman had to type it down. And the phone went and I answered it. And the person on the other end said, get me Bob. And I can remember, uh, Jeremy remembers this too. I remember holding the phone up and saying, Bob. And every single face in the newsroom turned round because they were all <laughs> called Bob. And it was a Saturday morning. They were all wearing cravats. And, you know, so number one, there, there were no women in senior journalistic roles. I mean, really zero in, in yeah. the radio newsroom mm. in 1985. That would have would have been, uh, let alone people of colour, let alone any kind of diversity of any sort. Mm. They were all called Bob. They all lived in Hemel Hempstead and they all thought the same way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on the one hand, you can say as a sort of elderly white guy like me and say, oh, we're being pushed out now. But on the other hand, you can also, if you've got any kind of awareness of these things, realize that actually it's a very good thing that all the changes that have happened uh, have happened. And and that's, you know, a, a huge one. And, um, you know, when I sit next to Michelle in the morning, our backgrounds are so different. An experience of religion when we were young, an experience of everything, really. And that's rather wonderful, actually, and enhancing. It's good for the organization. Um, and it means, you know, a few fewer people who look and sound like me will get in. But that just has to be, I think, the, the way it is. But I don't think we should be, you know, we, we shouldn't um, airbrush away the fact that, yeah, I, my someone like me starting in the organization now with my background is much more disadvantaged than I would have mm -hmm. been than I was in, in 1984 when I started. And do you worry then that your children have had it too easy or do you think actually it's now such a complex world that it's much yeah. tougher for them? Uh, both, actually, weirdly. I think, number one, they have had it too easy. And I, I you know, you go back to that caving business. I, I'm not at all keen on the idea that my children would ever have been sent by the school to do something dangerous without me knowing about it. But on the other hand, I'm also really aware that they've really never done anything my elder daughter rang me once when she did the, her Duke of Edinburgh thing. They were in North Wales. And she rang me and she said, Daddy, I haven't got long. I'm in a thing called a telephone box. <laughs> and I, I realised that really you don't, you don't know anything about the world at all and certainly about looking after yourself. And albeit that um, my, my twins are now in, into their 20s and, and are able, it seems, to look after themselves. But they've had a pretty nice life. And... Do you is is that damaging to them? Um, yeah, possibly it is. But at the same time, then I think the other part of what you suggest is also true that actually there's a level of complexity about the modern world that nobody really faced in the past, and they're going to have to find a way of becoming who they are and coping with all the added difficulties that there are about um, about how people are pigeonholed and how they're seen and um, and whether jobs last for long and what a career is in the modern era and all those kinds of things. And actually to us, I, I joined the BBC in 1984 mm. and I'm still in it. <laughs> <laughs> it was all pretty simple. So looking back to yourself when you were 11 going off to school, what would you say to yourself? What do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I think the big thing that I'd say is don't worry about thinking about all of this. And I think towards the latter part of my teenage years, I was very unhappy and kind of consciously unhappy. I remember being really miserable on my 18th birthday and spending it completely alone. And my mother didn't really think much about birthdays. She gave me a, a, a softback thesaurus, I remember, for my, my 18th <laughs> birthday present. I, I just, I felt, oh gosh, I'd not got anywhere and I'm stuck in this house I was back by then from from boarding school and I wasn't sure I was going to get into university because I was really struggling academically and I, I can remember thinking how awful life was and I, I wish now that I could have been able to look back and say you'll be enormously happy in your life you'll find love you'll have children all those things that 
never mind the career side of it, which I don't think particularly matters. Although I think that probably would have mattered to me at that age because I was ambitious as well and frustrated because I knew that more sophisticated children than I was were going to smart boarding schools and going to Oxbridge and all the rest of it. And I was worried, particularly with my mother's sort of half knowledge of that world, I was worried that I was going to endlessly miss out because I hadn't somehow managed to get a toehold in it. So all of those things, I think I would I would look back and say, don't worry at all, because the main thing is that when your mother's gone, you'll still be able to love other people and, and for them to love you. Justin Webb, thank you very much for joining us on thank Past you. and Perfect. Thank you hugely. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the broadcaster Justin Webb. The series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or you can download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Sajid Javid, Tony Blair and Kirsty Allsop. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.